This is international radio station VLPC-DB from Sydney, Australia with global broadcasting rights. No portions of any of our programs may be reproduced without this station's express permission. I wish to acknowledge a new collaborator, broadcaster on our network. His name is Professor Michael Newman, a colleague of mine for about 15 years from the University of California at Berkeley. Michael is a specialist in sustainable development, urban planning, and design, particularly at the regional scale. Michael's work has carried him all over the world, literally. He has been a speaker, actor, promoter, and assistant in fighting climate change issues, working very hard to assure that the climate change and sustainability issues are coupled. He's joined us on our network as an occasional commentator. Please welcome him to Ed Talk Radio. Let's set the scene of the danger that the California wildfires present in terms not of the loss of land, wildlife, and the rest, but the loss of habitat, and the loss of water that these fires represent. We are turning an ecological corner. Michael Newman will present how, why, and what. California's most iconic trees are in trouble. Climate change-fueled drought and wildfire have ravaged forests from San Diego County to Yosemite National Park to the Oregon border. Beetles thriving under warmer temperatures have killed more than 160 million trees and counting. Larger ponderosa pine and the storied sugar pine are among their favorite targets. Massive blazes, once easily extinguished by modern firefighting techniques, are raging out of control. Crown fires have obliterated entire stands of trees, including thousands of ancient giant sequoias. If things continue, foresters fear that once-shaded canopies will eventually transform into sun-baked shrub and grasslands. Experts say, perhaps surprisingly, our best hope is to allow forests to burn more frequently. Historically, fires have served as the janitor of the forest, clearing out shrubs and smaller trees on millions of acres a year. But after a century of aggressive firefighting and logging, forests are now overgrown with thick patches of younger, thirsty trees. As climate change-fueled blazes have descended on these parched landscapes, flames have jumped into treetops, creating devastating crown fires. That's made a lot of people nervous. Folks fear their forests could be next. You know, I want the public to enjoy this wonderful place. 
Uh, most importantly, though, I want these trees protected. And uh, these uh, sequoia groves are, they're, they're dying. I had put out in January a proposal for the legislature to invest a record amount in our home hardening, uh, our forest health, as well as fuel break and vegetation management. Governor Gavin Newsom says he has the answer. The state and the U.S. Forest Service now plan to clear out trees and other vegetation on a million acres a year to mimic the benefits of fire, but without the risk. Many people like the idea. Well, it's controversial, but what I feel is this needs to be thinned. Uh, this fuel that's on the floor is in insane. I grew up here since I was four. My grandparents were campground hosts for 25 years. So I remember what it looked like before, and you could see through the trees, you could walk the old trails. You can't do that anymore. It's just extremely dense. However, powerful environmental groups say the cure is worse than the disease. They argue that heavy machinery will trample forest habitat and leave behind massive amounts of highly flammable slash debris. They say the less humans interfere, the better, pointing out that many species, including giant sequoia, need fire to thrive and reproduce. The heat opens their serotonous cones, otherwise sealed by a thick fire-adapted resin. The Forest Service and um, a number of scientists funded by the Forest Service uh, have been telling the public that it's not possible to get natural conifer regeneration hundreds of feet, certainly not a thousand feet or more, into the interior of a large high-intensity fire patch. But in fact, what we're seeing is the most abundant, most vigorous giant sequoia regeneration in the middle, in the most intensely burned part of this large high-intensity fire patch. We're seeing hundreds of giant sequoia seedlings and saplings per acre. And yes, it killed a portion of the giant sequoias, but that's what has to happen in order for giant sequoias to reproduce and survive. Most researchers say forest thinning can be effective, especially when focused around homes, roads, and other highly populated areas. Even the highly protected national parks, fearing ever larger blazes, have recently embraced chainsaws and heavy machinery. Yosemite, as far as I know, has not removed this much biomass before. This is a whole new scale. It's a whole new size problem. We've never had to deal with a problem this big. We've never had to use the big tools up, up until this point. You know, maybe, maybe a chainsaw, maybe some big trucks and maybe an excavator, but you know, behind us, there's probably four excavators and a bunch of trucks that are spinning. It's, you know, the magnitude is just so much bigger. We don't have time to mess around with small tools. Like we have to take big bites to deal with the big problem. Still, scientists warn that logging is not a cure-all. They say thinning of small trees is not physically or financially practical on the massive scales needed to tamp down fire and restore forest ecosystems. Researchers largely agree that allowing forests to burn more frequently is their best hope to survive a warming climate. 
Hello, uh, listeners, and welcome to Ed Talk Radio. I'm your host today, Michael Newman, and today we'll be talking about uh, wildfires. There's uh, many around the world, um, very serious, uh, very severe, um, Siberia, Turkey, Greece, Italy, all over the Western U.S. Um, and, and other places. And so um, as this is becoming in the fire season in the Northern Hemisphere, um, uh, a hot topic. Uh, now um, we'll be talking about that. And today um, our guest is uh, Dr. Don Hankins from Cal State University, Chico, and we'll get to him in a moment. And um, uh, I also wanted to, uh, uh, among other things, uh, link uh, FIRE's relationship with uh, COVID-19. Uh, you might be scratching your head uh, about that. And it's important because smoke inhalation weakens the lungs and the immune system, makes individuals living in smoky areas more susceptible to infection by not only the coronavirus, but other viral and other vectors. And so it illustrates the interactions among human activity, including development in uh, the wild lands and the wild land urban interface, um, climate change and pandemics that we really need to take into account. And uh, moreover, uh, fires create uh, fire refugees from rural areas, at least temporarily and sometimes permanently, where vaccination rates, at least in the U.S., tend to be lower. And a lot of these people go into uh, uh, urban and other areas, uh, uh, fueling the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And so... Um, uh, um, uh, Today, um, uh, on our show, we have Dr. Don Hankins, as I mentioned, a professor at Cal State University in Chico in the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and an expert in fire ecology and management, and a Native American who strives to integrate indigenous practices into modern fire fighting uh, techniques. And before we get to uh, Dr. Hankins, let me turn to a few adages by one of America's most regarded and prolific fire historians. Uh, that's Professor uh, Stephen Pine, uh, emeritus at uh, Arizona State University. And uh, this is a quote from him, uh, kind of straightforward, but uh, it's an adage that uh, uh, helps us understand it a little better. Fires depend on fuel availability. That is the arrangement and size of fuels. Those with the largest surface to volume ratio burn the quickest, such as leaves. And so, uh, and uh, pine needles and uh, uh, the, the scrub and the, the duff on the ground. And so his adage is, quote, fine fuels drive the fire. And uh, lastly, according to uh, Stephen Pine, the most effective treatment to reduce the fuel load is also the most ancient and ubiquitous, fire itself. And he goes on to say uh, what a lot of research and a lot of uh, experienced uh, uh, people are aware of in nature, dry lightning accounts for most of uh, most fires. Uh, however, humans have changed the fundamentals, eventually holding a species monopoly on fire. And we account for roughly 90% of the fires in the United States overall, we being humans. That's according to uh, Professor Steve Pine. And in California, 
roughly a quarter of the population of, of the 40 million people. So about 10 million people live in the wildland urban interface, which we'll talk about uh, with Professor Hankins. Uh, last year, um, most or much of the 4 million plus acres that burned in California's wildfire season were also in the wildland or in urban interface. And so the long story short, we've been increasingly building in harm's way. And so that's where a lot of the conflict comes in. And so given that, uh, let's turn now to uh, Dr. Hankins, who is uh, an expert on fires in California and uh, beyond. Uh, as I mentioned, he's a professor of geography and planning at Cal California State University. He has a BS in wildlife, fish and conservation biology and a PhD in geography from UC Davis and is specializes in areas that he calls pyrogeography, the geography of fire, ecohydrology, landscape ecology, conservation, and indigenous stewardship, and, um, and a large amount of his time and energy and research and, and practice uh, has been involved in um, fires in California and the American West. Um, so, uh, uh, with that, um, let's turn to uh, Professor Hankins. Uh, Don, um, help us understand the situation now in California. Give us a, a brief beyond the couple words that I said a moment ago. Right. Well, and hello. Um, yeah, in terms of the situation currently in California, you know, for those who are not in California um, and those even in California who maybe are living in urbanized areas where water is being imported um, to, to uh, provide your drinking water supply and all those sorts of things. California has really been in a situation for the last, um, I'll say 20 years or so of uh, kind of a prolonged drought. And politically we often hear about, you know, kind of the water year and it's a drought year and it's not a drought year and the government kind of shifting back and forth about the, um, the availability of water <clears throat> for different users. But from a, a kind of the perspective of the ecosystems, the rain that we've had over the last few years um, and really that 20 year time period has really not been sufficient to um, allow for the replenishment of water within the groundwater supply and within the landscape to sustain all the vegetation that we have across the state. And so as it turns out this particular year in, um, in 2021, we've, had a pretty dry wet season coming into the season and um, severe drought stress, extreme drought stress across vast areas of the state. And that's really provided an opportunity for fire to be uh, in a kind of a critical mass um, in the state. And so at this point in time, we've got multiple large fires happening um, across the state. At, at the time of us talking, you know, in the Sierras, in the Cascades, we've got the Dixie fire, we've got the Caldor fire in the coast range. We've got, um, you know, other, other fires that are going over there, like the McCash ship and the Klamath river system and so forth. And, you know, a lot of these fires, there's a mix between how they ignited. Um, some of them are started by uh, lightning, um, in this state this year, a lot of the fires and, and in typical years, um, about 95% of all fires are human caused. And so, you know, the risk of, of fire starting during a drought year is, is always kind of hinged more upon kind of the accidental ignitions, if you will. 
And this year, it just makes it that much more extreme because the fuels are dry, um, you know, in terms of the dead and down fuels, and then also the stress of the drought on the vegetation itself. So that's really led to the large fires that are burning, um, such as the Dixie Fire, and, um, you know, pretty, pretty dangerous situations for people living in the wildland and urban interface as well. Right. And um, right now, the Dixie Fire is the second largest in California's history, we're told, and it's approaching 800,000 acres. And the degree of containment is um, uh, not, it, it's, uh, I understand it's increasing, but it's still largely uncontained. And um, here we are in August, and we have uh, well over a million acres in the state of California alone that uh, have burned or are burning. And, um, you know, decades ago, wasn't it the case that we really thought of wildfire season as September and October? And here we are the last five or so years with millions of acres burning even in advance of the traditional or historic wildfire season. So it's quite a serious situation we're in. Right. Yeah. And that seasonal change, I think, is really important for, for folks to consider. I mean, the, there's obviously the, the politics in the U.S. in particular around climate change you know if we if we think about the the shifts in the seasons um there has been a, a you know a, a shift in terms of how long the dry season is and you know when i was talking about that response to um the drought situation in california you know we've had we did have a few years um in that 20-year time period where we we had good sufficient rainfall our reservoirs were filled back up but that rainfall came down often in very short time periods with large um, atmospheric river, you know, deposition of water onto the landscape, which isn't really the kind of um, precipitation that leads to the groundwater recharge that's necessary to sustain the vegetation. And so those kind of, uh, you know, connections are really important for people to understand and, and how that, that interaction occurs. Right. Uh, it's uh, critical, the whole climate, hydrogeology, ecology, um, system, if you will. Um, thank you for that. And you mentioned uh, politics, Don. Um, in California and in, in the American West, let's say, where there's a lot of uh, forest lands and, and uh, um, who uh, manages our forests and the fires that occur in them? And of course, in California and in the American West, not all the fires are in forest. Many, much, you know, they're in scrublands, coastal scrublands, other savanna and scrublands. Um, but who manages uh, the forests and the lands where the fires occur? Yeah, that's a great question. And and for folks who aren't familiar with like land ownership types and jurisdictions uh, in the Western U.S., there's a really, there's a big mix of, of what that looks like. Um, the federal government owns quite a bit of the land, uh, you know, and has a responsibility over jurisdiction over a lot of these areas. Um, you know, for instance, in the state of Nevada, I think 85% of the state is, is owned by the federal government, um, primarily through like the Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, some Department of Defense, um, and so forth. In California, you know, we're looking at roughly, uh, you know, 40% or so of the state um, in terms of the forested lands, at least being being owned by the uh, U.S. Forest Service. And then we've got the National Park Service and um, some other, you know, federal entities here and there kind of scattered about, Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. 
Um, and, and most of that's kind of in the high country. So, you know, we think about the, the wooded areas where you've got oaks, you know, oak woodlands, we've got uh, mixed conifer forest, and then we've got, you know, kind of more pure conifer forest, like uh, fir dominated communities and so forth. And a lot of that's federally owned. And then, and then there's a lot of private land that's kind of intermixed in the foothills that um, is owned by private timber companies and, you know, people living in the wild and urban interface and so forth. And then the lowlands, you know, mostly in California are, are largely privately owned. Um, a lot of it's been converted, what was historically like grasslands and oak woodlands and riparian forests and wetlands and things like that have been converted mostly to agriculture. But those those lower elevation zones and the wildland urban interface um, in terms of fire in California are mostly part of the jurisdiction of CAL FIRE or the de uh, Department of Forestry and Fire Protection within the state. And then, you know, the upper elevation pieces, particularly on the federal lands, uh, would fall under the jurisdiction of agencies like the Forest Service. So, you know, in terms of, of the response and responsibility and the policies around that, there's a lot that's that in the past has kind of been out of sync in terms of the way that, that agencies would respond. So, you know, with CAL FIRE, for instance, their, their big, big mandate has always been to keep fires small. And so they come in, they're very effective at keeping fires small. And, um, you know, if, if a fire is allowed to get or, or is unable to be contained in, you know, a, a fairly short time period, then that's usually when we start to see larger fires starting to, to occur. But, you know, that, that really leads into the situation we're in today where so that, that approach has been so effective that, um, you know, now when there are ignitions in some of these places and the fuel loading is so high and you've got, you know, all these different factors at play, um, it really makes for dangerous situations and, and really a situation where we, we're realizing now that there's really a deficit of fire within the landscape. And that may seem odd to hear the term deficit of fire when we look at, you know, large areas such as, you know, this year with the season already having over a million acres or approaching a million acres being burned. Um, you know, that's only a small portion of the state. And when we think about the historic amount of burning that, that was taking place between lightning and human ignitions by indigenous populations and so forth, you know, on an annual basis, and, and this is not my research, but Scott Stevens and others in the early, you know, 2007 timeframe had come up with some estimates saying that, you know, roughly four and a half to 12 million acres within the state burned on an annual basis before the gold rush. And now, you know, if, we, if we're just approaching 4 million acres or just around it and within the last year, uh, for instance, in California's fire history, um, we're not even really scratching the surface on that. So there's a lot that, that needs to be done um, in terms of that. And, and politics is, is something that's starting to come a little bit more into alignment to allow for the space for fire to happen and um, the actions and the funding to, to be able to do that sort of thing. Right. That's a very complete answer. Thank you. Um, you uh, suggested, a, without these weren't your words, a patchwork quilt or a hodgepodge of federal agencies, much less state. And then there's county and private lands and local lands um, and uh, that have various uh, jurisdictions and, and philosophies. I mean, you, you referred to fire suppression, um, at least indirectly. And um, since the... Uh, um, early 1900s, especially uh, coalescing around 1920 and then into the 1930s, um, the 
the fire suppression was an explicit policy of the U.S. Forest Service and, you know, Smokey Bear and, and then even uh, fire out by 10 a.m. Uh, was the ex explicit policy in the uh, early mid-30s by the head of the Forest Service. And so we have a century of fire suppression. And that figure you gave of approximately 5 to 12 million acres per year burned uh, by the, the indigenous population and um, natural uh, occurrences uh, per year before the gold rush. In other words, before significant uh, uh, settlement uh, in, in California. So, so uh, you're basically saying, if I understand you correctly, that um, this uh, uh, longstanding approach to fire suppression has led to a, a fuel buildup coupled with extreme drought where the fuel becomes very fire prone and uh, you, we have the situation where we're in so that, you know, 4 million plus acres burned last year, it seems like a lot, which it is, but the problem is it's, it's, it's uh, a lot of it has occurred where people have built homes and so there have to be more fire suppression. So it seems like there's this tension and I wonder if you could talk about that, you know, because uh, you know, you have a degree in um, planning as well. And, and so what could you talk about community development and planning and building structures and infrastructures, um, as I said earlier, in harm's way and fire's way? Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's really important to point out a, a few key things around that, you know, in terms of, of the absence of fire within the landscape. One thing that that's led to is an increase in the amount of vegetation on the landscape. So when you know, historically, certain areas of the Sierra Nevada, for instance, had 40 to 100 trees per acre. You know, we're, we're approaching 10 times that in many places in the Sierra. So that's more competition for water and, uh, and fuel production, too, um, within those places. So in the absence of fire, that, that one creates that, that stress. And then when the drought hits, um, you, you have, you know, that competition for the water resources. And then, you know, uh, disease outbreaks and beetle infestations and things like that. Which, which then exacerbate the, burn, the burning issue. But in terms of, of the people part of that and, and planning, you know, a lot of folks, you know, with this, this whole kind of debate that goes on, should we be, um, you know, trying to get people to move out of the wildland urban interface and move to urban areas and, you know, this sort of thing. And, you know, the, the thing that I often come back to is that, well, one, you know, many of the places that are, the larger towns in the wildland urban interface in California are places where indigenous populations have lived for many millennia. And so it's not that people shouldn't be living in these places. And in fact, even, you know, pretty much all, I mean, everywhere in California um, at one point or another was wildland. And so, um, you know, it's, it's really thinking about fire is a problem across the region and we live in a fire prone state. And so all of our communities are vulnerable to something at some point in time, be it um, sea level rise, earthquakes um, and fire. And, you know, kind of the main ones flooding too. That's another one. Um, all of these things kind of come in, into play. And so, you know, we have to think about how to, to build and how to live in these places. And when it comes to living in the, in the wildland urban interface in the risk of fire, the biggest tool that I really see around that is giving people the ability to use fire as a way of reducing the fuel load and changing fire behavior by rearranging fuel, um, you know, arrangement within the landscape and the conditions of it. 
And, um, and then, you know, beyond just those basic principles is also what are the materials that we're building with? How are we building? And, you know, maybe looking to changing that. And so when we look at fires like the campfire that happened in 2018 that burned the town of Paradise and, you know, many communities nearby to where I live, um, a lot of the houses that, that burned were burned in, you know, older, um, you know, kind of, uh, what do you want to say? The building codes were, were different, right? So stick construction, you know, we're basically taking fuel from the forest. We're taking trees. We're taking that fuel, putting it into building homes. And basically, you know, we're, we're expecting that, that those homes are going to be fire resistant, but they're basically just dry tinder boxes. So rebuilding um, and building in a way that is um, more resistant to fire in the first place is, is one of the key ways of being able to reduce the risk of these communities burning down at all. And so, you know, that might include different types of construction, um, using different materials. Maybe we, we're switching from doing like um, siding on homes with, uh, with like engineered fiberboard and things like that to going to like concrete or stone or things like that, that are going to be a little bit more resistant in the first place. And I think that's also something that, that also, you know, when I think about the indigenous connection to that is one, the indigenous populations living in these places use fire as a tool to protect themselves, make their landscapes more productive. But around the village sites, like all of the construction, there was nothing that was fire resistant in terms of the way that people built per se, you know, so you have homes that are made out of, out of um, brush and, and logs and, you know, materials that are flammable, but they're built in a way and people use fire in a way within the landscape to protect those places from burning down at all. Um, some of the houses in this local region were subterranean. So, you know, that's something that, that I think a lot of people might think, well, that's kind of, you know, like, why would we move into subterranean houses? Well, there's a couple of benefits that I think about if we were to think about that in the state of California is one, as climate warms, you have better uh, thermal regulation within the house itself. So you're using less energy to heat and cool the house. But then as a house is subterranean, it allows for, um, you know, embers to move over it rather than to stick around the house. So, you know, maybe these are some of the things that we should be thinking about is the old ways of doing things and the old knowledge systems are probably more appropriate to the places that we're living. And that's the kind of thing that's often been overlooked. Right. And it goes in part, you're, you're, uh, I like the way you think because it's a uh, holistically, uh, as an ecologist does, <clears throat> and looking at all the connections amongst all the different processes and aspects of a greater ecosystem or region or place. And um, that deficit of fire <clears throat> and the droughts not only contribute to the quantity and the, the flammability of the, the, let's call it the fuel load, but um, I want to bring into the equation and, and use it as a segue to um, some of your um, interests and expertise uh, regarding uh, uh, incorporating in, uh, Native American or indigenous fire regimes into contemporary ones. Um, last Saturday, a week ago, there was a Los Angeles Times newspaper article, uh, a controversial one, and it, the article focused on forests and the wildland urban interface, and um, particularly thinning and, and prescribed burns and other management tools. And, and it contrasted that with the, um, as a, you know, the that focus on, on the, the forests and the fuels uh, with 
the focus on homes and structures and infrastructures. And this particular article uh, uh, squarely put its focus, its money, as an, an op-ed is not a, a journalistic reporting article, um, a focus on homes and, and structures. And um, so, so, and whereas what I understand you to just say was, well, it's obviously both. Uh, and you used indigenous, uh, you know, uh, native Californian uh, approach, you know, you started to touch on that. What do you think we need to do in the wildland urban face and, uh, and then interface and then uh, get to the, you know, I'd like to get to that question of how to uh, incorporate indigenous um, fire regimes. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, you know, and I, and I think it, one thing that's really important for us to understand also is landscape context, right? Um, I think a lot of times we kind of overlook that and, you know, a person could buy a beautiful piece of land that's situated in very steep terrain on a ridge top, you know, situated in the middle of a, of a brush field. Right. And, um, you know, I, when I'm saying that people have lived in these places, like not every place was a place where people have lived. And there are definitely places when we think about, you know, fire behavior and, and those kind of things, there's the fire behavior triangle, um, which is fuels, weather and topography. So when we think about, you know, very steep terrain um, in areas where the fuel load is high and the weather conditions, such as um, places where we know that there are very specific like wind patterns and things like that. The Feather River Canyon, where the Dixie Fire originated from and also where the campfire originated from, it happens to be a place where, you know, the, the weather systems and the topography um, and the fuels all come into alignment. And that's, you know, if you look at fire history maps for the region, these are places within the state where there's a lot of fire that happens. And, and really, you know, over the last century, if not even the last 20 years, pretty much everywhere within the Feather River Canyon has burned um, between the valley floor, you know, around Oroville going all the way up to Almanor. Um, you know, so there are places that are going to be more prone to fire and you have to understand that from, you know, kind of the geography of fire. Um, so in terms of, of, you know, people being able to live in these places, um, you know, thinking about that is going to be key. And then also just having, having those tools, for being able to live in those places. The fire is going to be a big piece of it, but, it, you know, in some places um, using fire too frequently may be problematic. So if you're living in a chaparral dominated system, high frequency of fire is, is going to um, cause that, that to become more grass dominated. The grass itself is a flashy fuel. You know, every year you basically got a new crop coming in and you're going to have to manage that somehow. And so how do you do it? Are you doing it with fire? Are you doing it with grazing? Are you using herbicide, mowing it? Like, you know, there's so many different options. But, um, you know, it, it, we have to be, th be thinking about, well, also how to steward for um, healthy ecological in these places too. Um, you know, that's where all of these things have to be considered in that planning process and, and really understanding like where and how do we arrange people and ecological communities within the landscape. And that's, it's pretty complex to think about it that way. But I, I often try to use the, the basic tools for planning and particularly like conservation planning tools um, for the way that I approach and think about, you know, community wildfire protection planning and, um, 
even fire use planning and those sorts of things, like all those tools for prioritization of where you're going to do treatments and, and those kind of things are all, all kind of built into it. I'm frankly, I'm less involved in, in like planning for where housing and, and, you know, those kind of communities are put into place, but more so in terms of the vegetation, um, you know, strategic planning and that sort of thing for, for fuels treatment and that sort of thing. Right. So like landscape ecology and how it interrelates with, and so um, that to bring, that's a, a, a very uh, comprehensive context and to bring it down to uh, a, a concrete reality where I live in um, the Northern San Francisco Bay Area in Marin County near Point Reyes, it's a national seashore. And there have been two relatively major fires uh, at the local scale. Um, the Mount Vision fire in, in uh, 1995 burned 12,000 acres, including um, 25 homes. And then last year, the Woodward fire, only 5,000 acres and no homes burned. And they're very different fires. But the reason I mention that is that um, uh, they've been starting just now to work with the, uh, the, the local coastal Miwok uh, 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 tribe and culture uh, regarding you know, looking at and understanding uh, um, indigenous, uh, you know, historic indigenous practices for uh, wildfire uh, management and, and landscape management, as you said. And, but the interesting thing here is, and the reason I mention it is, while there's a interest in and even desire for what, you know, the firefighters call prescribed burning uh, or planned burning, um, controlled burning, uh, to thin and to, you know, to um, uh, reduce the fuel loads um, by human uh, intentionally uh, uh, started human fires, um, that the season, the, the opportunities for that to happen are very restricted because in the spring, the winds are extremely high. Um, in the summer, there's uh, fog and moisture, and it's very difficult. And the same in, in parts of the winter when there are typically storms in a non-drought year. And then whether it's a drought year or not, in the summer and, and early autumn, there's no rain. And uh, the, the, you know, it's, it's like a tinderbox to dry fuels. And so prescribed burning in this context is very challenging at the same time. And, and the reason, one of the reasons why I reached out to you is that I read your uh, fantastic, uh, terrific article. There's a cover article in a magazine called Bay Nature, Bay referring to the San Francisco Bay. And the 20th anniversary issue, uh, their, their lead art, their main article, the cover article was your lengthy article on the use of um, uh, indigenous um, methods to deal with um, landscape management and, and fire management. And I was wondering if you could um, uh, go into that in a little more detail as a, not only in a, a scientific expert and a policy expert in your field, um, uh, but also as a Native American. Uh, could you uh, um, talk uh, uh, about that and, and, and give us a sense of uh, what it is um, and uh, how it can be, or if it can be incorporated into contemporary fire regimes to reduce the frequency and severity? Yeah, uh, that's a great, great lead in on it. And I think, um, for folks who aren't familiar with what indigenous burning is or what cultural burning is, um, it's, you know, many of us are familiar with prescribed or controlled burns, you know, that, that agencies and private landowners might do for fuel reduction or 
wildlife habitat improvement, which are two of the main reasons why um, controlled or prescribed burns are, are done. Um, on the cultural side, there are vast reasons of why people use fire. Um, and, and it all ultimately comes back to traditional law and understanding within the place. Um, and what I mean by that is that we have traditional stories that tell us about how devastating fires once you know, ravage the landscape and then how we learn to, to use fire and the gift of fire to people to be able to steward for um, these different reasons. And among those reasons are things like conservation of rare um, plants and animals, um, enhancement of certain properties of plants, uh, maintenance of travel corridors, protection of home sites, um, you know, the list goes on and on. But when we put it into the context of, of a landscape and the diverse vegetation communities that we have, and, you know, for California in the context, we've, we're in one of the biodiversity hotspots of the world. And so we've got a great richness of, of different plants and animals and fungi and, you know, going on through the list and, and all encoded in these different ecosystems that are here. And, you know, the same is, you know, we can say for many other places too, like on in Australia and, and South America where, you know, there's similar practices for um, uh, the, the application of indigenous fire, you know, in terms of these systems, each system has a specific time frame where being able to apply fire to it is going to um, create some outcome that you know through practice, through long-term cultural use <clears throat> of fire within these places. And so when we think about, you know, your lead in talking about um, the seasons around where you're at in Point Reyes with the fog in the summer and then the, the dryness in the, in the early fall and the wind patterns and those kind of things. And then you start to break down each of the different vegetation community types that are there each one of those community types from the coastal sage scrub to the, um, you know, the pine dominated forest to the fir dominated forest and the grasslands and the, you know, coastal, other coastal scrub communities and those sorts of things, each has a different regime of fire um, that, that culturally you would, you would think to apply fire into it. And so then when you start to know that landscape and you read that landscape in a way, all those indicators are going to tell you when it's the right time to set fire. Um, you're going to know that you can safely put fire into a, a grass system um, during certain conditions because the soil moisture is going to allow for the adjacent adjacent uh, woody vegetation not to burn if you're, say, burning in, in dry grass and um, the live fuel moisture is high, for instance. And, you know, through that kind of seasonal arrangement of, of curing of fire uh, or fuels within the landscape and so forth. It really kind of leads to uh, a natural rhythm, you know, following that natural rhythm um, within the landscape to be able to apply fire. And that knowledge system is not unique to California. You know, I've worked it's pretty uh, broadly across Australia with indigenous communities, primarily in the wet tropics, but also out in the desert in Western Australia and in the Southeast around um, New South Wales and, and the capital territory and so forth. And, you know, those practices are, are all the same. And, you know, the same even with indigenous peoples up in Canada, there's, you know, there's a lot of these things are as indigenous peoples, like we're, we're linked to the land. Like that's what makes us in my mind, you know, that's what makes us indigenous is that connection to the land and our cultures, you know, being rooted in place 
So we have these very strong relationships that allow for us to understand where and how fire in particular is used and how it should be used. And while we haven't been able to use it because of policy, there's a strong um, desire and recognition that we need to get back to that because we're losing biodiversity, we're losing our ecosystems, and we're losing, frankly, we're losing, you know, our cultures and we're losing, um, you know, kind of the health of human populations in these areas too, from, you know, not only the effects of smoke, but also the mental health issues that are associated with the traumas of, of evacuating and, uh, and, and the change in our ecosystems. And so these are all really huge problems that, that if we can reassert indigenous fire back into these places, it's going to um, help to alleviate that in so many ways. That's um, terrific. And, and I like the connection uh, to the land and the, you know, what Aldo Leopold called uh, in, in his book, The Sand County Almanac, the land ethic. And that we're, in, in my view, uh, and we meaning, um, I'll just paint a very broad, crude brush, Western cultures, the more virtual we become, the typically the less connected to land uh, we become. And um, recognizing that's a gross generalization, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, um, you know, we're always, you know, when you think of business or government or what have you, we're always looking for... Uh, you know, a silver bullet or a one size fits all, a standard solution, a best practice. And what you're saying is that, you know, each, and California is a good example, but of course it's not limited to California whatsoever. You know, the ecological complexity and the biological diversity here, we need to like custom design or a bespoke, bespoke approach, recognizing the seasonality, the, the current weather conditions, the topography, the the uh, ecology, the species, et cetera, all go a uh, factor in. And I think that kind of, I'll call it natural or indigenous or what have you, native uh, knowledge of the place that's passed down through, you know, uh, generations, scores of generations. Uh, you know, I lived in New South Wales and Sydney for many years and, and in fact worked uh, uh, a little bit uh, in the, a aftermath of the 2009 fire outside of Melbourne, a, a, a disastrous wildfire that uh, destroyed thousands of homes and a number of people died. And um, those uh, um, indigenous practices are not just regarding fire, but they've been going on for tens of thousands of years. And it's an incredible amount of local knowledge that's been built up. And, and I think the challenge, as I see it, understanding what you said and I mean, reading what you've written and, and others as well, that um, it will take time, is my impression, to incorporate the, not only the, the indigenous fire regimes or fire practices, but the knowledge, the local knowledge um, that supports that, that has been built up for so long into these contemporary scientific and policy-driven processes where they're in the United States, at least, there was one size fits all, one silver bullet, put out every fire by 10 o'clock the next morning. And, you know, this century of fire suppression that, you know, we've referred to. Um, and, and so uh, um, what, uh, uh, Don, would you, uh, uh, a very specific question, would you recommend more strict control of building and construction of homes and structures and infrastructures and fire-prone 
um, ecosystems going forward? Um, you know, I think we definitely need to be thinking about the, the regulations on how we build um, and also considering in some senses where we build based on, you know, kind of those geographic factors that I, that I mentioned. Um, you know, I think that is definitely a part of it, but I, at the same time, we can't expect to build anywhere within, you know, areas with natural vegetation nearby and not allow for fire to be part of that process. And, you know, earlier in my career, I worked on uh, a, a document for recovering species in the East San Francisco Bay area, and they were all species associated with fire-prone vegetation communities. And I talked pretty heavily about the use, uh, the need to use fire and restoring fire into those places to um, steward for those species and their ecosystems. And that that plan was was never published because I talked about fire too much. But the reality is, is that, you know, regardless of where you live, if you live near natural vegetation communities, and, you know, even in the middle of the Bay Area, there are lots and lots of, you know, fingers of natural vegetation that are that are scattered about. And under all the, the right or wrong circumstances, depending on how you look at it, they're all vulnerable to fire. And unless you're doing something to reduce the fuel and change fire behavior, the outcomes can be quite devastating. And so, you know, you have to plan for it and you have to build for that. Uh, I mean, think about it this way. The 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, you know, was a huge disaster because fire spread from building to building. And so, you know, I look at San Francisco and people might think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm in this area that it seems so remote that fire could even happen. But, you know, it's not just about wildland urban interface. It's, it's how we build uh, and, and it's all fuel. And, uh, you know, so like, it's, it's not just the we issue, it's, it's, it's something that's, that's much more widespread than that. So um, the, the way that we build is really the key factor, I think, and, and, and then, you know, in the wildland and urban interface, then also using fire as a tool to reduce the natural vegetation, you know, kind of um, drivers of fire too. Right. So it's not just, as we said, not one size, it's all, but it's where we build, it's how we build, and how we manage the landscape. Uh, in addition to the buildings. And um, that, uh, um, uh, as we draw this uh, terrific interview to a close, um, you know, it, it leads me to reflect on, um, again, uh, some uh, pointers that uh, Stephen Pine mentioned about uh, um, uh, some basics of wildfire, wildland fire management. And he lays out uh, in, a, in a very succinct way four general approaches or strategies that are possible. One is leave it to nature. Um, and then another is substitute tame fire for wildfire, tame meaning prescribed burning, whether indigenous, following indigenous methods or more scientific or combined to hybrid. A third is to change the fire environment, rearranging the fuel load. And we've talked uh, quite a bit about that as well as the substituting tame fire for wildfire. And the fourth is just uh, suppress or exclude fire, like we try to do as much as possible in a city, uh, but it's also up until the late 60s uh, in some national parks and early 70s, some national parks in California where the National Park Service and the Department of Interior 
changed that at that time, uh, 50 year approximately um, um, uh, policy of uh, fire suppression and putting out fires as quickly as possible. So that in truly uh, wilderness areas, wildlands in, in uh, designated wilderness areas or national parks to let it burn like in Kings Canyon and, and uh, elsewhere. And, and to some positive effect that led to policy changes at the federal level in certain instances. And so um, uh, would you say to those four strategies, leave it to nature, substitute tame fire, fire for wildfire, change the fire environment or exclude fire? It seems like from what our discussion and your, your uh, life's work that indigenous practices use some of the second one, substitute tame fire for wildfire, and some of the third one, change the fire environment. Would you um, say? I, I would actually say that it's it's all of it. I mean, indigenous fire includes all of it. And while you know there may not have been um, fire trucks and apparatus for suppression of fire, people had to know um, the basics of, of firefighting from time to time as well. Um, you know, there, there were lightning ignitions. And so those natural fires worked in tandem with the burns that people were doing. And, you know, in some ecosystems, particularly in the lower elevations, lightning isn't that common. And so, you know, you have some ecosystems that are more uh, shaped by traditional indigenous practices. And then you've got areas where, and as I'm talking about California here, um, and, and then you've got areas in the higher elevation where, you know, lightning ignition is more common. And so like you've got kind of the geographies of where fire in, in that kind of way is taking place, but it's really all of it that, that kind of comes into play. And I think even going forward, it's, it's still looking at that. Um, the one thing I, I really caution because a, a lot of folks, you know, kind of think, oh, well, wildfire is going to, you know, create this, this mosaic and, and it's going to, you know, create, the same kind of outcomes. And when I look at California and I look at other places where indigenous stewardship has taken place for so long, um, the diversity of species that are found in places and the way that those ecosystems were shaped actually increased the, the threshold for how much diversity could be in a place and even shaped the, even the genetics of, of certain uh, species to be able to survive in place. So there's a you know, thousands of years of driving of, of cultural fire within the landscape by indigenous practice allowed for something different to be in place. And, you know, it's only over the last few hundred years within even Australia, North America, you know, examples where that indigenous fire piece has been removed. And that's when we start to see the decline in biodiversity and kind of the unraveling of these systems. And it can happen over fairly short time periods, like in Western Australia, not through my research, but uh, folks like uh, Doug and Rebecca Bird, who's are, who are at Penn State, you know, they've been working with Mardu folks. Mardu were one of the last contact um, tribal groups in Australia. In 1963, they went to Jigalong Mission. They had been burning for that entire time, never had seen white people until 1963. And then they left the desert for, you know, or left their homelands uh, for about a 15-year time period. They came back out 15 years later to a landscape that had been kind of overrun by wildfire. And slowly they began to put their fire back into place. They knew that they had lost maybe five species, um, three locally extinct, two permanently extinct, that were linked to fire. 
And so, you know, that shift in regime is really important. And so now there's actually work going on to try to reinstitute um, and, and restore those wildlife populations from others that, uh, you know, from the local extirpations um, to put those species back into place. So fire is really, a, you know, and that cultural fire is really an important piece that, that I think a lot of folks may just think, oh, fire, we just need fire in them. But it's the right kind of fire under the right circumstances that creates the outcomes that we're hoping to get out of the systems. So you're saying that fire has a number of purposes, uh, but all tied to the interaction of the culture and, and the nature, the land. And um, it seems like you're suggesting without using these words that fire can be good, whereas here in California, the United States, for example, uh, or Western approaches, broadly speaking, in general, see fire as bad that needs to be put out. And so there's this new understanding that's not just to... Um, manage landscapes and protect, uh, you know, human structures, but also to overall protect and enhance um, uh, the na nature and the, the nature-culture interaction. So fire can be considered as good, and I think that that's a good place uh, for us to leave it, as long as that good includes good uh, landscape and ecology, ecological management and um, fire management that's appropriate to its time and place. Um, uh, Professor uh, Hankins, I wanna thank you uh, very much for uh, sharing your time and your expertise with us. It's, it's been a very informative and very terrific. And are there any uh, last words you'd like to uh, leave with our audience today, recognizing it's a global audience? Right. Um, well, one, I just want to say thank you for having me on. And, and I would say that, you know, for folks living in, in, you know, these different areas of the world, you know, there's always a place to try to find and connect to the landscape and also try to connect and support the, the efforts of the local indigenous peoples in, you know, bringing fire back to those places. Um, there's, there's an ecologist, a restoration ecologist, uh, who's Potawatomi named uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. And in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she talks about this concept of becoming indigenous to place and that, you know, as, as global citizens, we tend to, you know, people move around quite a bit. And I think that's where a lot of our disconnect of uh, people from the land and nature really comes from. And so I think if people can think about how to connect with people and obviously, you know, indigenous peoples have a, a very strong connection to landscape, um, you know, like working with people in that context helps people to become indigenous to place and become citizens of those places too. I mean, indigenous populations are not large in m most areas of, of uh, the world. And so helping to support their efforts um, are going to be key to a lot of the kind of things that we are challenged with from bio to, uh, you know, global warming and, and just general climate change impacts and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of solutions there, I think, that can help us out. So from globalization to localization or relocalization so that we're, instead of being global consumers, humans can be local citizens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, again, um, uh, Dr. Hankins, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, and uh, uh, this is... Uh, the show for uh, Ed Talk Radio. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Michael Newman, and our guest has been Dr. Uh, Don Hankins from the Cal State University uh, in Chico in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And um, that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening.